Here. It's my pleasure to introduce Christine Modi, who is our guest speaker today. Christine um, is a part of St. Clair's, um, our host congregation. So I feel especially um, grateful um, to St. Clair's when we knew that we were needing to find a location to uh, start a church like within a month. I texted my friend James Rodenheiser. He texted back, do you need a place to meet? And I'm like, oh crap, that might have just been the answer to our prayer. And, you know, James kind of extended the offer. I figured he probably had to talk to his vestry. I think Christine might have been like the senior warden of, of the vestry, which means like the people making the decisions about this sort of thing. And we're here out of the good graces of St. Clair's and then Temple Beth Emmett. And it's an, it's an amazing thing that we're allowed to meet here. Uh, we pay rent and it's a win-win. Okay, granted. But <laughs> at the same time that St. Clair's is meeting, that's a, that's a big deal. Churches norm, normally don't do it. So our hats off and our gratitude to St. Clair's. And Christine is uh, speaking to us on behalf of St. Clair's today doing the, doing the sermon. Christine is um, a mom and she is um, also the a lecturer at the University of Michigan in the English department, the writing section of things. She's the director of the peer, I'm, I'm gonna, it's gonna come to me in just a moment, peer, um, no, peer tutoring, the peer tutoring <laughs> program at the University <laughs> of Michigan. You thought I heard that, but no, I didn't. Um, <laughs> um, so please give it up for Christine. We love Christine. Yeah. Okay. Oh, take that off the altar. I never would allow that. No, just kidding. Um, good morning, everybody. It's really great to be here. I hope um, I remain on this platform and that this sermon does not entail a quick trip to the emergency room with a broken ankle. Um, I feel quite high up here. Um, I want to say thanks, first of all, to Ken for inviting me and that I'm really honored to be with you this morning. Um, I'm currently serving as the president of the board of Genesis, which is the, the um, nonprofit organization that owns this building and manages this building on behalf of um, our two congregations. And I want to say on behalf of Genesis um, that we are really, really happy to have you in our building. Um, and since we're all in this together, uh, I'd like to tell you a little bit about us in case you don't know. In 1970, um, St. Clair's opened its doors to Temple Beth Emmeth, uh, a reformed Jewish congregation. And then in 1974, after four years of TBE renting space from us, a landlord, a lessee relationship, uh, the two congregations formed the Genesis Partnership and decided to dwell together in this space um, as equals and as friends. And one of the documents that was created to form that partnership was called the Genesis Agreement. And I want to read you a little bit of it because I find it very moving even after all these years. Although the world has always been torn by distrust, suspicion, waste, prejudice, and the threat of economic upheaval and war. Its citizens today are becoming more aware of the absolute need to trust, conserve, believe, give, and love if we and our heirs are to survive as the children of God. 
Both the temple and St. Clair believe that by jointly owning and sharing the same facilities for their various worship and non-worship activities, they are demonstrating out of their act of faith and trust can be found a significant mutuality of understanding. It's a goal of St. Clair's to affirm the aspirations of the temple to finally have a home of its own. It is a goal of the temple to establish its permanent religious home. It is a corporate goal of both congregations to provide for the current and expanded facilities for future use by the community, Blue Ocean Faith. Understanding that both congregations will maintain their unique separate identities and will continue to worship and be fruitful in the ways that are unique to both understandings of the nature of God, each believes that their actions herein will stand as a symbol of the power of reason and love to overcome distrust and the prejudices of our separate histories. <laughs> Amen. A couple of key points, because somehow I have to get from here to the gospel, right? So I got I to transition. First of all, there's this deep desire in all of us for a home, uh, for a place to be loved, to, for a place to put down our roots, um, and for a place to abide. Second, once we have that place, we open the doors to hospitality. We open to each other and to others. And finally, I think what this passage from the Genesis Agreement says to me is that we can only overcome prejudice and distrust. We can only become fruitful as we are meant to be fruitful by being together. As it turns out, and as you probably realize, none of this is particularly easy. Um, it has required sacrifice on the parts of both congregations, on the parts of individuals within those congregations. But I think it is also fruitful in many ways. The fact that you are here is a sign of the fruitfulness of that relationship. And I know that Blue Ocean is also bearing fruit in person and online. We've created a place of love and trust, and we are glad that you are here with us. Today's reading is also about abiding with Jesus and with each other. It's about being together in Jesus' love and about the new kind of relationships that that love shows us and about what kinds of things are made possible in that new relationship, what kind of fruit we can bear. The passage that was read so beautifully for us this morning is part of what the Bible scholars call the farewell discourses. Chapters 14 through 17 of the Gospel of John, you may have been reading a series of those over the past few weeks. They're not found in any of the other Gospels. They are unique to John, as much of John is in his own eccentric way. Um, in John's Gospel, it appears after the story of the Last Supper. And so I like to imagine everybody kind of sitting around after dinner, you know, they're, they're laying around, maybe they had a little too much to drink. Jesus has washed his friend's feet. Judas has left the building. The disciples are mostly not totally clued in to what's going to happen over the next 24 hours, but Jesus is. He is at the end of his ministry, and like many people who reach the end of their lives, he's doing a little self-assessment. He wants to figure out what to say to these disciples as he departs from them. What do they need to remember? 
What do I want to pass on to them about life? What's really important? These are the people he's been closest to, and this is his farewell message. Jesus said to his disciples, as the Father has loved me, so I've loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Abide in my love. My Father loves me. I love you. Abide in that love. This sounds like a wonderful invitation. Stay here. Dwell here in my love. A long time ago, seems like a long time ago now, I was considering becoming a pastor. To do that in the Episcopal Church, you have to take a year-long class, of course. And at the end of it, there's a retreat. During the retreat, at a beautiful monastery, we had some time to reflect. And I found myself sitting in front of a sculpture and just gazing at it. I don't actually remember it very well anymore, but I think it was a picture of God the Father holding the body of Jesus, his son, after it had been taken down from the cross in the way that someone might carry a child in their arms. God, of course, in this picture, is heartbroken and grief-stricken. And then, as sometimes happens when you have art and scripture together, the image began to change in my mind. And it became instead an image of Jesus carrying me. At that moment, for maybe the first time in my life, I had had a sense, a sense of feeling, a visceral sense of what Jesus' life is like and what it might be like to abide in that love, gathered up and held close like a little child. It was a gift. Think for a moment about the ways you abide and dwell and stay with Jesus. Ken told me I could ask you to think about stuff, so I'm going to ask you to think about stuff. (laughs) Think about the ways that Jesus abides with you, comes to live with you, perhaps even when you're not looking for him to do it and maybe not even aware of it. And if you don't feel this sense of living with Jesus or if you want more of this feeling, I invite you to ask Jesus for more of his presence now. As I said in that moment, it was a gift. Certainly a thing that I'd like to keep and hold close. But as Jesus goes on in this passage to talk more about this love, this gift, it becomes a verb, an imperative verb, a commanding sort of verb. This is my commandment, Jesus tells his disciples, that you love one another as I have loved you. The relationship is a command. 
The commandment is love. And this is not an easy love that you get to hold close. It's not a warm, cuddly love. It is a sacrificial love. It is a death-defying love. In love, Jesus followed his Father's commandments all the way to the cross. This is my commandment, he says, that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Let me tell you about one of Jesus' friends. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran pastor and theologian in the first half of the 20th century. He had an almost idyllic middle-class upbringing. He had music lessons, and he played on sports teams, and he had a large, loving family, seven kids, always busy. He studied theology at the university beginning at age 16, and he completed his doctoral thesis when he was 21. A little bit of an overachiever there. He taught theology at Berlin University beginning in 1931, and in 1933 began speaking out against Hitler. He became a leader in the Confessing Church, which, was, which had resisted the attempts of the Reich to unite all the Lutheran churches under the state. Friends that he'd made when he studied in the university, or when he'd studied in the US in the early 1930s, tried to get him out of Germany by inviting him to Union Theological Seminary in New York City. And he went, but he immediately regretted it and returned to Germany on the last boat to cross the Atlantic um, in 1939, saying that he could never return to a liberated Germany if he had abandoned his fellow Germans under Nazism. After he returned, he participated in various plots to assassinate Hitler. He was um, silenced, he was harassed, he was censored, um, he lost his job. Eventually, he was arrested, tried, and convicted. He was held in a series of Nazi prisons. And then he was sent to Buchenwald, and finally to Flossenburg, where he was executed two weeks before the camp was liberated by the Allies. If you read Bonhoeffer's writing, you see that the foundation of his faith was a deep abiding in Jesus' sacrificial love a love that insists on seeing others as friends, that commands action, that does not shy away from speaking out against anything that does not look like love. Bonhoeffer didn't go looking for martyrdom. Instead, he followed Jesus' commandment to love to its inevitable conclusion in his place and time. We have our own context. Where do we see people being treated as others? How might we, following Jesus' commandment and Bonhoeffer's example, act out of love for them? One place that I see such love in action today is in the new Poor People's Campaign. This um, 
movement asks people to come together across political parties, across religious denominations, and across social movements to work with the poor, led by poor people, to shift the moral conversation in our country away from a narrow political moral issue such as abortion, prayer in public schools, and teaching evolution, to think instead about how we show love for one another in our country. This is a grassroots movement continuing the legacy of Martin Luther King and his Poor People's Campaign of 1968. That focused on three evils, as King described them. Racism, militarism, and poverty. Here at the beginning of the 21st century, the new Poor People's Campaign has added a fourth, ecological devastation, which will inevitably be born on the backs of poor people around the world. Next week in the States, we will begin a season of raising awareness around these numerous social issues by taking direct action based in love and in nonviolence. In other words, we will engage in civil disobedience. I've said that this movement is being led by poor people, but the movement also recognizes that people who are poor often bear disproportionate risk to participate in actions of civil disobedience because they have a criminal record, because they may lack immigration status, because of employment and because of childcare. And so for this reason, those who are friends of the poor have chosen to be trained to risk arrest on their behalf, to disrupt the unjust systems that criminalize and marginalize poor people. No greater love, no one has greater love than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. For most of us, this will only require $100 for bail, a night in jail maybe, a court appearance, a little wrangling of childcare or other responsibilities so we can be gone from home for a night and maybe a misdemeanor on our record. For some, it may require more. But following Jesus' commandment to love, many are choosing to act. How is God calling you to lay down your life for friends or strangers? How is God calling you to sacrificial love today? Jesus says, I don't call you servants any longer because the servant doesn't know what the master's doing, but I have called you friends. I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last so that the Father will give you whatever you ask him in my name. I think Jesus is calling us to become the beloved community. 
like those first disciples, sitting around the dinner table, wrapped up with love into a mystery that they couldn't understand, a future that would require unimaginable sacrifices from them and bear unimagined fruit through them. Jesus is calling us to abide in love with Jesus, with God, with each other. Jesus is calling us to see others, those who look different, live different, love different, speak different, as Jesus' friends, and to love them as our friends, and to be willing to lay down our lives for them. If we go, Jesus promises us that we will bear fruit through the sacrificial loving relationships he modeled for us in his life and his death on the cross. The relationship is the commandment. Like the disciples, we are called into loving, self-sacrificial community in Christ. And through that beloved community, we will bear fruit that will change the world. Amen.